Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an English fantasy author and champion of the video game industry. In 1975, while in his mid-twenties, he founded the board game company Games Workshop, which soon caught the attention of the American creators of a new kind of tabletop game, called Dungeons and Dragons. My guest brokered a deal to sell D&D in the UK as a mail-order company and then opened the company's first retail shop in South London. In 1982, he published the first of the fighting fantasy books, which have now sold more than 20 million copies. He joined the video game industry and, at the publisher Eidos, helped bring the games Tomb Raider and Hitman to the world. Last year, he was honoured with a knighthood, for services to the games industry. Play has always been seen as trivial, he once said. Yet when we arrive in this world, we all learn through it. Welcome, Sir Ian Livingston. A pleasure. So the uh, I, I'm interested, you know, you, you, in that quote there, you talk about how play has always been seen as something trivial, as, you know, I've written about games for a long time and you often, you know, come up against a certain amount of scepticism from people who don't play games. How did it feel to 
um, receive a, a knighthood for working in this this area, sort of from the establishment who, you know, I guess, uh, many times in your career have, have rejected video games in one way or another? It's probably you know, long overdue, for, not just for me. I'm obviously pleased to be the first, but there's an awful lot of deserving people in the industry who should be recognised in a similar fashion because the games industry does speak to Generation Z, it does speak to today's entertainment medium, and those who've criticised games are probably ones who've never actually played a game. And if you think cognitively what's happening when you're playing a game and just kind of part your prejudice against some of the titles that children shouldn't be playing and they're they're 18 rated for a reason, and think what's happening inside somebody's head, problem solving, you can't get through a game without problem solving, you're learning intuitively, you can fail in a safe environment and the game encourages you to play again until over time everyone could become a winner and games like Minecraft, incredibly creative, children can learn in contests by applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand, they can create glass and put those in the environment, so it's effectively learning by doing. Mm -hmm. Games like Rollercoast Tycoon, effectively a management simulation. Uh, you're managing a, a theme park, building the rides, understanding the physics, understanding the staffing levels required to run those rides and the economy of, of pricing those rides. If you get it right, great. If you don't, you tweak the parameters until over time, everyone can be a winner. So everyone feels that feeling of success. And so I think games are a great contextual hub for learning. Uh, as an industry, I think it's been always under-recognized about the the positive power of play. Do you, as someone who speaks to MPs and I, I guess advocates for the industry in places where, where few other people do advocate for video games, have you detected a, a change in attitudes over, over the course of your career? Absolutely. I think there's been a huge shift in, in recent years because though a lot of people now in power grew up with games, whereas I was starting off, we were treated like aliens, really. What's a... You're too old to play games, you know. How old are you? Stop that right now, as though it's a sort of strange pastime for people who get older. I mean, people play chess till 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 then in the nineties. That's always been seen as okay. So why not board games? Why not role playing games? Why not video games? In fact, many people only take up bridge after they after they retire, don't they? It's a perfectly natural phenomenon to be playing games. You know, they they, they are culturally important. You see imagery of games in everything we do these days. We've seen how the games industry is now a $250 billion euro industry, bigger than music and film combined. And it speaks to Generation Z because it's interactive. It gives people agency. They're not passively watching some linear entertainment where the director's decided where the action will be. They're in control. What were some of the games that you enjoyed playing when you were at school? The games I played at school were Monopoly, and I used to play chess for the school. But... Monopoly, I played fanatically, um, even though if you look back at it, it's luck. It came of luck and negotiation. But yeah, I, I used to play an awful lot. And in 1975, I was playing the British Monopoly Championship on Fenchurch Street Station, came second, fortunately. If I'd won, I'd be able to go into the World Championships, but sadly not. I had no idea they did a World Championships for, for Monopoly. That's, uh, that's amazing. And... Um... So, the, you know, obviously board games do play a major role in your life because this is ha what's in your mind when you come to set up Games Workshop. Can you just tell me about that, how that all came about and what the plan was? Well, I was sharing a flat in, in, in South West London, Shepherd's Bush, with two old school friends, Steve Jackson and, and John Peake. And we all shared a passion of blues music and 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 playing playing games and 
we decided, wouldn't it be great if we could turn our hobby of playing games into a, a business? We decided to publish a, a, a newsletter called Owl and Weasel. But it already starts there from John, John Peake, who was actually a, a, a civil engineer, but was also an incredible craftsman. And he'd made this backgammon board, and we thought maybe we could sell these. And that's really how it all kickstarted. And that's how the name of the company became Games Workshop, because the flat became a load of wood shavings and sawdust everywhere, as John and, and Steve as well also helped fabricate the, these boards. And I go out and sell them, and they would do the admin. So Steve Jackson, John Peake, and I, we decided, let's go for it. And so we published out on Weasel, uh, started selling our games mail order. And one of the copies of, of Owl and Weasel uh, found its way to the desk of Le- in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, of uh, Gary Gygax. And he wrote to us and said, love your magazine, although we hadn't sent it to him directly. Here's this new game I've invented, and that was Dungeons & Dragons. And it was kind of a pivotal moment for us because when you open the box of D&D, I mean, the box itself didn't look very much in those days, but it opened up your imagination like no game had ever done before. I don't think any game ever will. This sort of milestone in gaming history, a role-playing game in which one person desires a labyrinth of passageways and, and dungeons and populates them with monsters and treasure, and the others take on roles of as being a hero or a wizard or a cleric and go on these fantastic journeys of, of the mind. Really theatre on the fly, exploring dungeons, killing the monsters, finding the treasure, and these games will go on forever. And... That was uh, an amazing experience. So we ordered six copies of DMD, and on the back of that order, we got an exclusive three-year distribution agreement for the whole of Europe. So, th- so those um, six copies of Dungeons and Dragons that you bought, how, how quickly were you able to sell those on? Pretty quickly. I mean, we advertised it in in Alden Weasel, even though the, <laughs> the circulation of fifty copies, the the news was spreading by word of mouth. Clearly, this is before the internet and before mobile phones but there was a kind of network of gossip and rumors that was permeated throughout uh, the gaming world although it's a very embryonic games world and uh, the news spread and people heard about D&D in that games workshop even though it wasn't a, a real business as such at that time were the exclusive distribution agents for, for TSR and we're living in this flat in Shepherd's Bush on the top floor, and we see people milling around on the streets down below and holding Alan Weasel in their hands, looking for this shop, because they'd clearly expect to find a shop, given the name of the company. We used to open the window and say, looking for workshop up here, mate. They come up into our kind of disorganized uh, flat, and uh, but still go away happy, having uh, found a treasure in the form of a D&D box. Well, so they they just come up the stairs and hand over their cash and walk out with a with a copy, would they? Yeah, very happy indeed. Even though we're surprised it wasn't a real shop. Well, the format of the podcast, in is that I'm asking you to choose the five games you'd like to install on your perfect video game console uh, and bring out to the world. Can you tell us a little bit about your first choice? Well, we... We're having to go back quite a long time, given I'm in my 70s now. But um, the one I played a lot in the very early days, was in the 1980s, was um, in television baseball. Here's an easy question for you. Which of these games is the closest thing to the real thing? A, in television Major League Baseball. B, Atari Baseball. If you thought A in television, you're absolutely correct. 
You see, I told you this question was easy. Is that plug into your TV console with absolutely minimal graphics, a few pixels moving across the screen. But it had compelling gameplay. And I used to play with Steve Jackson when we used to share a flat in the very early days of Games Workshop. We used to stay in and, and, and play a lot of board games. But we discovered the Intellivision console and we played this endlessly. And we'd, we'd also had a strange fascination for baseball. But it was great gameplay. And when people ask me, what are the three most important things about a game? I will say gameplay, gameplay, gameplay. Technology and graphics, of course, are crucial and vital, but they play a secondary role to gameplay itself. So in television game, baseball was very thrilling. I mean, there's a keypad control control players and and there were, and another thing, a bit like Lemmings, it was always a, a sound effect that resonated with you for a long time. But with, with television baseball, every time one of your players would out, the, the, the console would bark at you, you're out. And that... We used to say, kind of say that all the time. Do you remember how you got hold of um, the Intellivision console? I can't actually remember where I bought it. Um, we heard about it in the States because we'd been to the States several times by then. Um, we first went to 1976 to go to, to Gen Con uh, to meet Gary Gygax to cement our relationship and also sign up for the all the other fledgling games companies that were starting at the time and again people were talking about games but um in television baseball didn't come out i think till 1980 so obviously a few few, few years later but i can't actually remember where and how i got it but I did. Did you feel, um, I, I suppose there can sometimes be a sense that people who play board games and tabletop games are slightly s- separate and distinct from people who play video games. Was there any of that sense of, um, or not quite rivalry, but uh, distinctness? Or, or did you feel that it was all you know, pulling in the same direction and the same audience? Well, it's, it's based on play. One is analogue and one is digital, but it's still play. And some people do both. Some just do one or the other. I, I do both. I'm sitting in a, a room here with, surrounded by 1,500 ball games and several hundred video games. And uh, I enjoy playing all formats. I and mean, some people don't, but um, I don't think one industry is dominating the other. I mean, it's great to see the continued growth of the video games industry at the same time there's been a real resurgence in, in role-playing games and board games i mean Dungeons and dragons has never been more popular in this fifth edition i think down to stranger things and critical role the the channel on youtube played by actors acting out games of D had a huge uh, resonance with with new audiences you've seen how all games have exploded onto the scene now with Day being bought by Embracer not longer for around about $2 billion. And the reason why that's the industry has grown, the board games industry has grown, tabletop games have grown, is ironically because of the internet. In the old days, if somebody wants to publish their own game because a large publisher wouldn't publish them, they'd print 5,000 copies of which 4,950 would probably end up in their garage because they couldn't get any distribution. Today, of course, through Kickstarter, effectively crowdfunding pre-sale of a game selling to a global audience, it really did risk a, prop- a proposition. And of course, you can learn how to play online. There are boardgamegeek.com where you can see how games are rated and all them, every game ever made is catalogued there. E-commerce, you can learn how to play from sites like Dark Tower. I mean, there's a whole digital ecosystem around the board games industry, which has enabled its growth and success. And I'm delighted by that because games, board games today are, are amazing. Some of the mechanics and the components are wonderful. 
So it's two years after you found Games Workshop that you open your first physical store, I assume because of the success of D&D. That's in Hammersmith in South London. Can you tell me sort of how you went about that? What was the what was in the store before you arrived and what was it like that first day when you opened its door? Well, the reason it came about was we actually started off workshop in our flat in Shepherd's Bush. Then when we returned from the States in 1976, by which time John Peake had left the company, um, Steve and I had to live in a van for three months because we couldn't get any cash into the business. The bank manager wouldn't have any idea about funding a games company in those days. We operated out of a small office at the back of the estate agent in Shepherd's Bush to the point that it became totally crammed with boxes and, and people in and out of this one room. And so the, the stage agent said, look, this can't go for much longer. And at the same time, we were getting frustrated that retailers weren't stocking D&D. So I said, well, why don't we open our own store? You know, we just had a conversation with Steve one evening and said to the stage agent, well, you should be able to find this uh, a shop that suits our needs. And so they found this one in, in Hammersmith in, uh, in Rabe's Court Park. I think it was a hardware shop before that. I can't actually remember. So it was just perfect for us. It wasn't on a main road, but it was effectively a destination site for somebody who was wanted to find D&D and other role-playing games at the time. And we'd also built up demand for workshop by that time because we'd started White Dwarf magazine in June 1977 and, and suddenly we had a much larger readership and, and, and sales were increasing. So we found the shop through our estate agent and, but the official opening wasn't until the 1st of April 1978 and we were absolutely thrilled and delighted that it was a long queue outside waiting for it to open. Amazing. Should we come to your, your second choice? Um, can you tell us about that? It's from 1992, I believe, a few years later. But um, how did you, uh, what is the game and how did you encounter it? Um, well, it was uh, Championship Manager. When I eventually sold out of Games Workshop in 1991, I joined the company called Domark, uh, who was operating in, in Putney. And how I'd got in touch with Domark is because of nine, in 1984, the founders of Domark, Dominic Wheatley and Mark Strawn, came to me and said, would I write their first game, uh, their launch products? They were marketing and advertising execs and they wanted to get into the video games industry in the, in the mid-80s, which was great. And they'd seen that my desktop dungeon Final Fantasy game book was number one in, in the bestsellers list and thought I would be best for them to, to write their, their game. So I agreed to do that and that game was called Eureka. Um, it was programmed in Hungary for secrecy because it was a £25,000 prize attached to the win of whoever solved the mystery inside Eureka. And somebody did, and I remember presenting the cheque on TV to a very happy uh, young Matthew Woodley. It was my decision then to join Domark after selling out a workshop. And the only game I really was passionate about at Domark when I joined, not long after I joined, was Championship Manager. And I was a mad football fan myself, 
and I'd spend endless hours, uh, even though it was a very basic program at the time. It was written in C, but um, the players, it was all about management and, and, and the match, waiting for the matches to happen. I became completely obsessed with, with championship manager or champ manager, as it was called over time, of course. It was just testament to the Collier brothers who created this incredible simulation of, of managing a football team. And as a Manchester City fan, um, I try and take Manchester City to the glory that wasn't actually happening in those days. Did you ever succeed? Well, n- no. <laughs> Much as well as I did, but I did try. I certainly put in the hours. I mean, I played it for a long, long time. So you, you mentioned there that your route into the games and video games industry was was via these these books that you'd started publishing in the early 80s, the fighting fantasy books. How did the the first one of those books come about? You know, obviously you're working in tabletop games. It's a bit of a leap to then start working on interactive books, I imagine. How did that happen? Well, in the first year of Games Workshop, we decided to run a, an event called Games Day, um, which was happened in December 75. And by the time Games Day 79 came along, there was a significant number of attendees and we had stands from other companies participating and one of those was penguin books and the editor of one of the books they had on on sale was called geraldine cook and she was bemused and fascinated by the passion and enthusiasm with which dungeons and dragons were being played by hundreds and hundreds of people at the game stay and she said to steve and i would we be interested in writing a book about dungeons and dragons the phenomenon that it is becoming and we said, rather kind of off the cuff, or writing a book about the hobby, why don't we write a book that allows us to experience role-playing? Uh-huh. And she said, oh, that's a really good idea, send us in a synopsis. So we kind of lumbered us with a challenge. And uh, Steve and I were then sharing a flat, um, actually managed to get some out of the van by that time. And um, we came up with this, concept which we call the magical quest with the a, a book replacing the dungeon master and making a solo player um, experience so it was a, a book in which you are the hero you make all the choices a branching narrative with the game system attached to it so breaking the text into 400 paragraphs which made no sense if you read them sequentially but at the end of each paragraph, there was a choice. If you wanted to open the chest, turn to 77. If you want to walk past the chest and down the corridor, turn to 207. So you made a choice and the consequence of that choice then rolled out. It was our job as really as writers to lure people to their doom. So we sent in the synopsis to Geraldine. She thought it was amazing. Um, the management of Penguin Books apparently laughed so hard, one of them hit their head on the table. So it took another year for it to actually happen, and they decided they'd go on their puffin imprint. So the Warlock of Firetop Mountain finally came out in 1982 without any fanfare or advertising. We promoted a bit through White Dwarf. It got off to a bit of a slow start, and that until in certain schools people heard about it, and that sort of virality of the day was the word of mouth in schools, and it passed from school to school, and it became kind of nationwide craze. And they reprinted Warlock probably 12 times in the first couple of months and said, said we need some more. So Steve wrote City of Chaos, and I wrote City of Thieves, and then Death Trap Dungeon, and then the whole thing boomed and became an international success and, and sold 20 million copies worldwide. That was how I really got into into 
into video games by the furore of of uh, fighting fancy attracting um, Mark and Dominic to to ask me to write you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That is extraordinary because, you know, that off-the-cuff remark made to the, the um, editor at Penguin, if you'd have said, oh, yes, yeah, sure, we'll do a more, I guess, sort of, you know, state of the industry, more journalistic, non-fiction book, it would have been so different, wouldn't it? But um, it might be difficult for younger listeners to appreciate this today. But, of course, around that time, there was a lot of controversy with Dungeons and & Dragons and, and with your fighting fantasy books as well, the sort of, you know, darker fantasy themes that they explored. Can you just tell me what that was like to, to live through that? Did you feel, you know, really like, a, like you had a target on your back at that time? Yeah, it definitely was there. There was, and it was called the Satanic Panic, and there was a lot of a f- bad publicity go around Dungeons and Dragons in the United States, and with Fight and Fantasy game books, um, we got our fair share of it too. The Evangelical Allowance published an eight-page warning guide about Fighting Fantasy, saying because you're in shacks with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil, which was obviously nonsense. A worried housewife in deep in suburbia phoned a local radio station, said that having read one of my books, her son levitated. So, of course, all of the kids, well, for £1.50, we can fly, can we? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, the local vicar near Penguin Books threatened to chain himself to the railings until they were banned. Uh, there were petitions sent in by worried parents saying they wanted them banned. Um, there was magazine articles, the, the dangers of children using their imaginations too much. I mean, that's insane. Uh, one vicar, I can't remember where it was, uh, in southwest of England, um, was trying to get the whole congregation to burn their books. I mean, it was crazy until, of course people began to realise they were actually a good thing. Teachers in particular realised how good they were for reluctant readers. There was a survey found that they were increasing children's literacy levels by 20% because of inquiring and curiosity about finding out what certain words meant. It encouraged creative writing, encouraged artists to start because the art we had in those books was really stimulating as well, the imagination. Over time, people saw the benefits of interactive fiction because of the agency of, of, of control and, and creativity, improved critical thinking, and all sorts of great things that are now accepted. But in the early days, of course, 
it was a kind of moral outrage. Did you feel supported by your your publisher, or were they also having second thoughts in those early days? No, the publisher was very, very, very supportive indeed, because they knew that these were actually good and were getting a whole generation of kids reading, particularly boys who were never previously interested in reading, and they were effectively a predecessor to to video games is kind of analog hypertext let's come to your third choice now which is from 1996 can you tell us about this game yes well that game is called tomb raider was chairman of IDOS because Domark um, was massively undercapitalized when I joined the company and I'd invested in that company. So I decided we put three companies together and, and merge with a company called IDOS Technologies. As chairman, uh, it was my role um, to concentrate on the content because I was you know, the games geek in the, in the senior management team. Whilst we had Championship Manager and a few other games that Denmark were publishing, uh, we needed to expand. I drove over to Derby to Core Design and met Jeremy Heath Smith, the managing director. Great guy. And he showed me around the studio and in the last room, um, you could say kind of rather coolly, it was love at first sight. He was this character, 3D character moving to a 3D world, um, incredible technology and graphics for the time. Of course, that was Laura Croft. And uh, we acquired the company and we published Tomb Raider in, in October 96, first on Saturn. And of course, a huge success it was on, on PlayStation. But I mean, it broke kind of all the records for numerous reasons. The technology, the graphics, it was a female character created by Toby Gard, who'd seen the rise of girl power and Hang Girl and Nana Cherry and a strong, powerful, athletic female character was, he thought, was just perfect for the games industry of that time. And of course, it was had the great gameplay. As I said, gameplay is the most important thing for me. And there's sort of the puzzle solving and the exploration and the combat. Yeah, it was just wonderful. I and mean, the way the camera worked in those days and moving away from 2D side scrolling games suddenly into the worlds of Tomb Raider, it was a phenomenal experience. And it's no surprise, of course, that it did so well. Yeah. And it, I mean, I remember playing that first one and you first to descend into your first tomb and the sense of adventure and Indiana Jones-like discovery of these tombs and then returning, of course, to your mansion in England with the butler and all of that. It just had such a wonderful tone, didn't it? The first time you see the Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> yes. That was such a momentous scene, wasn't it? And got shared everywhere. As you say, this was the time really where video games start to change from being seen as this quite nerdy thing for young adolescent boys to to something else and Lara Croft becomes you know I suppose a marketable personality I think Marks and Spencer's used her for something around that time and um, you know what did it feel like to see that shift you've been working in, in and around games for two decades and they've always been seen as quite nerdy and a niche thing you know was it gratifying to see um, games arriving in the mainstream in this way? Yeah, it was brilliant to see the kind of cultural cultural impact it was having as well as the economic impact. It sold, I think, some two and a half million units by 19, 
1997. Lara Croft, the character, was also being used by major brands to promote their products. So LucasAge um, used Lara Croft in their advertising and changed the name of LucasAge to Lara's Aid for a month. It had a phenomenal success on, on their sales. And some of the biggest brands in, in cars were also using Lara Croft to, to promote their vehicles. And the lifestyle magazine, The Face, used Lara Croft for a cover, the first non-human to grace the covers of, of The Face, the first digital character. So there's an awful lot of stuff going on around games at the time, part of Tony Blair's Cool Britannia catalogue. And it was just wonderful to see it, that sort of social gradually becoming socially acceptable by a new generation, particularly that games were cool. So it wasn't just a speaky, nerdy activity. It was mainstream entertainment. But you're working with different platform holders at this time. How important do you think Sony's arrival was in helping helping to bring about some of these changes you mean? Because PlayStation had a very different uh, marketing feel, certainly in the UK to, to Sega and Nintendo at that time. Sony did an amazing job with the first PlayStation. I mean, it really did change change the game, no pun intended. But of course, software sells hardware, and Tomb Raider was perhaps the biggest contributor to the success of the early days of, of PlayStation, along with games like Wipeout. And it also widened the, the audience. As you said, the games were historically seen as young guys sitting in dark bedrooms, doing strange things as far as the world were concerned. But slowly over time, we've seen how games have come out of the bedroom, become online, become casual on phones and very much front and center of, of mainstream entertainment. And so everybody's now become a games player to the point where we've got 3 billion people playing games now. We've seen how games technology is helping build the metaverse. We've seen how games technology is part of, of course, VR very much so and augmented reality and the the impact that games have in society as a whole and technology is, 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 is being used beyond the games industry and entertainment into training and to education there's and it's just great to see but it's not always been that way but i think that the first playstation and the widening of the audience in the 90s really accelerated that process in the early 80s there was a very vibrant video game scene in the uk the britsoft sort of era as it's called and then you know that goes away to a certain degree and then is you know, there's a resurgence around the time of Tomb Raider with, with, like you say, games like Wipeout. And suddenly, you know, Britain once again is creating, you know, really big global video game brands again, Grand Theft Auto as well as another example. What was helping to encourage that, do you think? Was it, a, you know, were there political reasons for that? Was it government support or, or something else? There was some government support in, in the early days. I mean, it was a, I think it comes down to the UK being a very creative nation. Look at our film, our fashion, our music, our architecture, our publishing, did I mention television? And, and comedy is uniquely creative. And you put a programmable computer into the hands of a creative nation, a presto, one of the outcomes of that is, is games. The Sinclair Spectrum, was an affordable programmable computer in, in the 80s and the BBC Micro was a cornerstone of computing in schools. It's no surprise then that the video games industry got off to a flying start in the UK. We've really punched above our weight as a nation 
in creating global blockbusters from, as you mentioned, the Grand Theft Auto to the Total War series to Football Manager to Tomb Raider to Fall Guys. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Unfortunately, a lot of those games companies are now foreign owned because we've not always seen the economic value of the games industry like other countries have, such as the USA, uh, China, uh, Japan. So I think we need to have more support around the industry itself. And the government has helped in recent years with video games tax relief, and there's a very tax advantageous investment scheme. But a lot more could be done. I'd like to see much more PR from senior ministers. You always see that the secretaries of state with their hard hat, high-vis jacket, photo opportunity outside some widget factory, but you never see them inside a video games industry studio. And yet the games industry is creating phenomenal uh, revenues for the for the UK and contributes some 7.9 billion pounds to UK PLC and small studios can create monumental returns, but the profits have been banked overseas rather than banked in the UK. Should we come to your fourth choice? Can you tell us about uh, this game and where you first encountered it? Uh, <laughs> Virtual Tennis on Dreamcast. Dreamcast was one of my favorite consoles, and I just enjoyed the, the multiplayer element of uh, doubles tennis in 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 uh, virtual tennis. It just again, it was down to the gameplay. You know, the graphics were very good for the time. The animations were very good, but the feel of the game was phenomenal. And um, yeah, I just I just loved playing it. And you know, we all had our favorite players. I used to. Tommy Haas or Yevgeny Kafelnikov, um, depending on who I was in, but it was very, it was a perfect doubles tennis game. And I have not really played a better one since. Maybe I'm stuck in a time warp, but uh, I think virtual tennis was just brilliant for its uh, playability. Yeah, it's an absolute classic. And, you know, that era of Sega just as well felt, felt very exciting with the Dreamcast. And it was the, sort of the last, I suppose, push for its big arcade titles of which Virtua Tennis w- was one, wasn't it? What are your feelings about the the arcade scene and, and those expressions of public play as well that Virtua Tennis was such an important part of um, in the early 2000s? Yeah, obviously it had been an arcade game um, before it was caught into Dreamcast. Uh, very successful. I mean, the, the arcades in the early days was where everyone played their games. So how would you would never think back then that could ever end up on a television in your living room but games did and that's that's a great thing but i wonder if we'll see a bit of a resurgence of just physical play spaces post-pandemic i know there's a couple of arcades that have opened in london recently so there could there could be an opportunity there perhaps i think physical is returning in in all sorts of entertainment phenomenons and i mean there's been a rise of board games we were talking about earlier the rising vinyl records has, has come back now. I think people need physical and digital in their lives. I mean, I like, you know, physical books has been resurgence as well. It's just nice to be able to hold it in your hands and just look at it and with video games. It's it's essentially a digital proposition, but in a board game you get all the components and little bits and just and the physicality of it is is something 
something special, I think. So you should have both in your life. You, you mentioned earlier about how successful companies in the UK, video game companies, are often purchased by by overseas larger companies. That happened to um, to IDOS Interactive, didn't it, in the late 2000s when Square Enix, the Japanese company, bought it out. Um, how did you? How did that affect you? And how how did you feel about it at the time? Well, I, you know, I joined IDOS effectively through Domark in '93, and IDOS when we floated in '95, and been chairman and seeing the rise of of IDOS on the public markets, and then after a couple of missed games that didn't do as well as it should have done, we were eventually bought uh, and ended up finally bought by by Square in Japan and. I was never going to be the guy who's going to be, I've always been kind of an entrepreneurial spirit and independent thinking. And I don't think Japanese cultural corporations were for me at that time, although I very much enjoy working with them. I didn't want to work for them. So I became, I left to become an angel investor and started investing in the um, indie scene in the UK, which was very, very exciting and remains so. And um, made a couple of good investments, one in in Playdemic and and one in Mediatonic. You've been you've been very good at picking winners over your career and uh, backing the right the right products or the right creations at the right time. Um, what do you put that down to? It really comes down to a lot of instinct and 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 the playability. I mean, we'll always I keep going on about gameplay, 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 but that is what people buy a game for. No matter how good it looks, if it plays badly no one cares and therefore it's important that that gameplay is predominant but in terms of indie indie studios i have a kind of basic chess checklist you have to assume that the game is going to be great but then it's the senior management team do they have a a managing director on an equal footing with the creative director to enable each other to be successful that's so key if the managing director or the financial director start deciding what product's going to be making you kind of likely it's not going to be the right one but if the creative director thinks they can do it all and run a company at the same time as building our games they're going to get it wrong too but as an equal partnership their lives were successful and that is their attitude to risk how much they've already invested their own money into a game and you know are the, why are they passionate about it and how is it differentiable do they understand today's business models they understand the absolute critical role that data now plays in analytics and metrics what's the total addressable market is there a multiplayer com- component do they know how to run games as service what kind of technology stack do they own what intellectual property do they own so there's a whole raft of things that have to kind of be in a line for me to get totally excited. But again, it, it usually comes down to the two main things being the game itself and the the, the senior leadership team, because people make things happen. Often you know, people, are, everybody has an idea, but it's the execution of the idea that's the hard bit. I've read. Um, I you, you can you can let me know if this is right, but I read that you left school with you only had one one A level when you left school in in geography, um, and then since then you've you know obviously ascended to the highest level of some of these uh, multinational companies and have had a great deal of success. Um, what would you what would you say, I suppose, to a young person who is perhaps struggling at school but thinks that they have skills in in other areas? And what might you have said to yourself at, at that time? Starting a games company, in my case, was certainly not motivated by a wish to make money. I always wanted to turn my hobby into something which I really enjoyed, into some sort of career, albeit a very poorly paid, 
difficult career in the early days and you know, sleeping in a van, eating hardly anything. I mean, it sounds like hard luck, but we actually enjoyed it because we were doing what we enjoyed. We were trying to build a, a, a company on something we're passionate about, i.e. board games and role-playing games. So follow your heart, I think, is probably the main thing. Make sure you partner with people to do the stuff you can't do or shouldn't be doing. So you've got to recognize your own strengths, your own weaknesses, and enjoy what you do. If you don't enjoy what you do, you should do something else. I think in fulfillment is from doing what you really, really enjoy doing. Indeed. Let's um, come to your, your fifth choice. This is a game that you had inv- invested in the in the studio behind it. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it's um, Golf Clash from, from Playdemic. Prove you're the best. Download Golf Clash for free and clash at golf. What are you waiting for? It's free. It's golf. It's good. It's epic. Intense. Adrenaline. Vroom. Exciting words. You get to win if you're good. Are you good? Find out and win. Who doesn't like winning? Is this ad over yet? No. Ticked all the boxes of those I just said previously about uh, gameplay and also had a fantastic leadership team in emerging director uh, Paul Booge and the crazy director Alex Rigby. And this wasn't their first game. And I think another lesson is don't be afraid of failure. Failure is just success, work in progress. Huh. It had that gate gameplay thing again, that the, the excitement of launching the ball was phenomenal. It had this kind of windscreen wiper, windscreen wiper kind of arrow going across screen and a pullback mechanism for releasing the ball, which is very, very exciting every time you do it. And they distilled golf into a game player versus player online. Um, asynchronous and but you could see the player hit their shots and he played over one hole so they had a very huge potential to be enjoyed by a very large audience because games only took a couple of minutes uh-huh. and there was all sorts of incentives to go up, up league tables and it was trying to get the investment community to get their head around this potential of, of uh, Golf Clash at the time was not as successful as, as we would have liked. And we ended up selling the company to, to Warner Brothers, who then sold it on to Electronic Arts last year for $1.3 billion. Now, this is 80 people huh. in Wilmslow, southwest Manchester, who were able to generate hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and phenomenal amounts of, of, of profit. And wasn't really recognized in the UK. Huh. And now Electronic Arts are the benefactors of, of that incredible success story. But as a game, you know, I still play an awful lot because at that thrilling moment of just playing one hole and just seeing the ball land where you want it to land, the puck going into the hole and win. We we often hear these stories of breakout indie game hits, and you know that's those are stories that are rightly celebrated. I think people are less clear on what role, I suppose angel investors play in making some of those games become huge successes. Obviously. These days, there are thousands of video games being released every single week via Steam, the App Store, whatever. There are all these amazing avenues whereby a developer can release a game. But um, yeah, how important do you think it is to have a person like you in a game's corner to, to get it noted and get it out there? Well, an angel investor plays multiple roles. And in my case, it's not a question of just investing money, which is, of course, critical because it allows the developer to hire the best people to give them enough runway to release the game when it's ready rather than having to release it because they're running out of cash and also 
I can leverage my experience in the games industry, the contacts I have, yeah. the mistakes I've made, the knowledge I bring around the markets and the players and the ecosystems. Um, I like to think I can add a lot of value. I've, I've actually stopped investing now as an angel because um, it was impossible to to do everything that I would like to have done. So I, that's why the reason I was a co-founder in a, in a venture capital fund called Hero Capital, which was launched in 2018. And uh, we're doing pretty well in that space now. Just, um, I mean, thank you so much for your choices. It's been wonderful to hear your story. I, I wanted to just ask one last thing. So last year you you returned to um, putting on a creative hat with uh, when when Penguin asked you to write a new fighting fantasy book, uh, which I guess was quite a few years since she'd written the one prior to that. What was that like coming coming back to taking assuming a creative role on a project? Well, that's that's what I enjoy the most: creativity. Um, <laughs> when I'm not working, I'll be messing around with board game designs or going out with ideas for a book, but um, Penguin are no longer our, our publishers. It's now Scholastic, and uh, it's the 40th anniversary of Fighting Fantasy uh, last year, and I, I wrote a book called Shadow of the Giants to recognize that that event. And it was just, I really enjoyed going back. I mean, it took me longer than it used to take, uh, my age, but um, I just loved people to their death, you know, fall on <laughs> Poison spice or get fried by a fire breathing dragon is, is yeah. gives me great joy and uh, try and put them on yeah, the yeah. wrong foot. I remember, with, like, you know, being when I was young playing through uh, your books and you sort of try and make the choices that you thought would uh, ensure your survival and enable you to prevail, but more often than not, yeah, like you say, it was sort of being wrong footed. Um, it, was it? Did you want players to ever finish the adventure? Well, of course, of course I did. I mean, a lot of people cheated as well. I'm sure you did. I used to call it the five finger bookmark because people <laughs> called kind of peeking around the corner if they wanted to kind of justify it to themselves. It wasn't cheating, but that's fine. And ultimately, it's nice that they finally. But I think that people enjoy the the puzzle element, and and it's it's not failing at a book. You enjoy the challenge of. If it was just too easy, a kind of linear walk in the park, it's, there's no payoff. But if you know you've really fought your way through and solved the puzzles and not being lured to your doom by the evil Livingstone uh, writer, then happy days. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to very slightly put you on the spot here and see if you would like to give a name to your uh, game console that you've you've built here. Um, have you got anything off the top of your head that we could, we could market it as? A name for my console god no preparation uh <laughs> just call it dice nice very good um ian thank you so much it's been wonderful to talk to you and i really appreciate your time thank you thank you Thank you so much to my guest, Sir Ian Livingstone. What a wonderful chat and fantastic to hear his memories of his of his long and very distinguished career in the games industry and around it as well. Ian is really one of the most vociferous and high-profile advocates for, for video games and board games in the UK and um, has been present... Or, or at the centre, really, of the advances in the video game industry over the last four, five decades. Just it's such a key figure. 
uh, certainly in the UK and in Europe. The week that this comes out that you're listening to this, I imagine, there are a couple of key anniversaries. So it's actually been 40 years ago this week, unbelievably, uh, that uh, Ian and his collaborator Steve Jackson released the follow-ups to their very first fighting fantasy game. So that was in 1983. They released Citadel of Chaos and Forest of Doom with Penguin. Of course, we heard that story of how those books came to be and uh, the unfortunate controversy that surrounded it at the time that uh, has long since dissipated. And I think most people now can see those books for what they are, which is a great bit of fantasy fun. Likewise, in cinemas right now, there is a Dungeons & Dragons film, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. It is fantastic. Uh, I went to see it at the weekend and had a great time. I'm not typically a fan of sort of action-y films, but this was funny, smart, well-written, had a brilliant ending, which almost no films have these days, right? It's, if you like the idea of Lord of the Rings blended with Princess Bride, then that's sort of the vibe. It's it's just tremendous. I really thought it was fantastic. A film all about teamwork and love and and a film that really manages to dodge cliche at every turn. Of course, Sir Ian was instrumental. It was it was him and his collaborators who brought Dungeons and Dragons to Britain and to Europe way back in the late 1970s. Uh, so we really have him to thank in some ways for the fact that that film is seems to be uh, such a great success. So yes, thank you for listening to this episode and for coming along for the ride. Throughout the month of April, we are doing two episodes a week. This is the second one of those. I hope it's not too much hashtag content for you, but uh, it's nice to get some of these timely episodes out to coincide with some of the things that are going on in culture right now, uh, which I think will... You know, is of interest uh, to people isn't it you can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com if you have any comments or suggestions or you have any guests that you would like to listen to on the podcast if you have a spare moment we'd really appreciate if you just very quickly left a rating and a review either on the apple podcast app or on spotify or however it is that you are engaging with with this that really does help and if you would like to go one step further and support the podcast financially please head to acast plus search for my perfect console and there you can become an early access supporter for just three pounds a month you can get your episodes 24 hours early and ad free okay thank you again for tuning in i will be back in a few days with one more guest their five games and another perfect console until then goodbye
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.